All right, so why is Lesson 9 a doozy? It's entitled Spiritual Harlotry, the Golden Calf. <laughs> I could have named it. There's, I had a number of different ideas. Adulterous idolatry, uh, just idolatry. Spiritual harlotry is what I chose for the Golden Calf because that's exactly what's going on. This is a cataclysmic disaster for Israel and when they turn away from God. So uh, we're going to be looking at chapters 32 through 34, and you might be saying, hold on a second, Nick, we just ended off last lesson, chapter 24. Why are we skipping over chapters 25 through 31? The reason is because at the end of chapter 24, uh, after the covenant has been established and ratified, as we discussed, Moses goes up to the top of the mountain to speak with God for 40 days and 40 nights. God reveals to him the blueprint of the tabernacle, right? So all the instructions for the tabernacle, the furnishings, etc., are found in chapters 25 through 31. Then after the golden calf in chapter 35 to 40, you go back to the tabernacle, focusing mostly on the construction of all these different things. So what I want to do for you is I'm going to um, skip over 25 through 31 and join it together, chapters 35 through 40, as one whole lesson, which is going to be focused on proper worship of God with the tabernacle. And that's a, a good thing. It's a high point. That's what we're going to end our Bible study on Exodus with here, these certain chapters. Sequentially, it makes much, uh, it makes a lot of sense chronologically because Moses goes to the top of the mountain while he's up there, down below the people are beginning to commit these grave sins. They're being extremely naughty and extremely disobedient. And so that's what we're going to see right here. So that's why we're jumping around just a tiny little bit. Uh, but the story flows while Moses is up on the mountain, they have no idea what's going on with him. They decide to take action of worshiping their own little gods. And then when Moses comes down, or as we're gonna see in this whole story now, in this lesson, Moses comes down, he intercedes for them, and then goes back up the mountain, gets more instructions, and then now we have the construction of the tabernacle, okay? Uh, so that's what we're going to do. So with that then, let's read the first few verses of chapter 32, verses 1 through 6 will make sense, and then we'll come back and explain this. So, uh, verse 1, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold which are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold at their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a molten calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day, offered burnt offerings, and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Okay, so while Moses, again, is up on the mountain receiving instructions, at some point therein, they decide, you know what? We don't even know what happened to Moses. As for this Moses dude, this Moses character, we don't even know what happened to him. He brought us by the land of Egypt, and now he's disappeared like a puff of smoke. So let's make us gods, uh, and we'll start to follow them, right? Now, it's interesting, a couple of things here. Number one, regarding Moses, it seems like they have very little loyalty or love or affection or devotion to him. They're like, as for this Moses guy, like, well, hold on a second. He's your leader, right? He's your fearless leader who delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians. You know, you got to like speak of him with a little bit more respect, but they're like, no, no, ask for this Moses character. We don't know what happened to him. But also number two, my second point is that they don't mention God at all. They say Moses brought them up out of the land of Egypt and they don't give 
any credit to Yahweh whatsoever. Of course, Moses is the instrument of Yahweh. He is Yahweh's faithful servant here at this point. He's come a long way, I think. But they don't even mention God at all. There's, as for this Moses, don't even know what happened to him. Don't mention God. Now let's make gods of our own, right? Let's make gods of our own hand. And they go to Aaron, and here is where me, my all of my students, whenever I teach this, we all kind of collectively just sigh and <laughs> And just, like, we're just stupefied. Like, how, Aaron, why would you do this? Why would you lead the people in such a great sin? Like, he didn't even put up a fight whatsoever. They go to Aaron. He says, give me your gold. He then, you should probably note this. He takes a graving tool and fashions a golden calf. Now, that takes time. That takes skill. Now, whether he did it himself or he had someone else do it for him, he was the leader. Now, taking a golden calf, this just didn't happen overnight. It probably took, I don't know, it's hard to say, you know, a few days maybe a week to fashion this. So Moses is gone for uh, a few weeks and they're like, okay, let's take matters into our own hands. Let's make uh, gods of our own. Aaron enables them to do that and they make this golden calf. Now it's interesting, before I forget, I want to go back to chapter 20, verse 23, right after the 10 commandments, right? When Moses is up on the mountain, speaking to God, getting the law. Remember, I taught you that it's really the law should be seen as God's family rules. You want to be in covenant in relationship with God, you, you got to follow the family rules because it's freedom from sin to be free for God. You want to be with God, you got to be free from sin, and that's what these rules enable you to do, right? So right after the Ten Commandments, before they get into what we call the Book of the Covenant, there's kind of a little bit of an ominous note here in verse 23, chapter 20, verse 23, God says, you shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourselves gods of gold. Now, a careful reader would be like, oh, that's interesting. Is this just one of the many rules that the people need to follow? Like no idolatry, worship God alone. Now we realize here in chapter 32, God was really doubling down on this particular law. I mean, obviously the first commandment is, and is all about worshiping God alone, making no idols. But then he kind of reiterates it with this, don't make gods of gold. That seems to be oddly specific. Well, now here they are making a god of gold and they make a, a bull, right? This bull is known as Apis. He is an Egyptian god. God. This is an Egyptian pagan cult, and it's a fertility cult. Apis, A-P-I-S, is a fertility god who represents power and pleasure and wealth. So there's the power and the, the bull itself, and that's pretty significant. I mean, even today, you know, the Spaniards, they have bullfights, or we have bullfights, and road, we have rodeos too as well in America, and you're bullfighters and running with the bulls and all this stuff. Like a bull is a powerful, powerful animal. And then there's the pleasure of the of the bull, really. There's kind of like the virility, I guess you could say. Uh, if anyone knows what Rocky Mountain oysters are, you kind, of, <laughs> you kind of understand, like, okay, there's virility there. If you don't know what a Rocky Mountain oyster is, you can Google that, all right? You could look it up online. Um, they're basically the testicles of a bull, okay? Where people eat those, all right? So there's the pleasure, the sex, and this cultic rite. And then there's the wealth. I mean, this bull is made in gold. So this kind of touches, I don't have time to get into this, but it really touches upon... Uh, in the spiritual life, it's the the threefold concupiscence. It's this threefold temptation, this inclination to sin, lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. It's really the, desi the desires of the eyes is the uh, unnatural, or I should say the disordered 
attachment for worldly possessions. And then the lust of the flesh or desires of the flesh is the disordered desires of the flesh. And then the pride of life is just, of course, egotism, vanity, and all this stuff. So I can't get into all that right here, but there's, that's kind of what's going on here. I talked about this even with the fall of Adam and Eve in the garden in the Genesis Bible study. This constantly is an issue with fallen mankind is this threefold temptation to sin. And the apis fertility God here kind of represents that. And so they construct this bull here with a graving tool that takes time. It takes a little bit of work and know-how. And then it's interesting because it says, Aaron, uh, Aaron says, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. Now, this to me tells me that Aaron's conscience is witnessing against him because he says tomorrow shall be a feast to Yahweh, right? So he's kind of like trying to blend the two religions here, saying we've built this golden calf and let's make a feast to Yahweh tomorrow. And he's trying to combine them. And that's kind of what we saw in this verse back in 2023 when God says, don't make silver gods or gods of gold to be with me. Because what would often happen is Israel, and this is certainly true later on in Israel's history, they would blend the two religions. They would worship God, but then they would also worship the pagan deities as well. And that's a little bit of what's going on here. And the people are probably also trying to give a physical, uh, visible representation of Yahweh, which God for, for, forbade. You can't do that. God is pure spirit. So all these things are going on here. But Aaron's like, oh, we need to, he's kind of like trying to tilt it back over, right? I made you this calf, but we need to worship and make a feast to Yahweh. Um, he doesn't stop the sin. He doesn't fight against it. And there's kind of a question there, like why? Like why did he give in so easily without a fight? Was he afraid of the people? Was he intimidated by the people? Uh, was he trying to win popularity? Like maybe he thought Moses was gone and he's like, okay, I'm the new leader here and I need to ingratiate myself. Maybe he envied Moses's position. I think there's a little bit of truth to that if you look at his rebellion against Moses in the book of Numbers, which we haven't talked about. But all, there could be a blend of all these things, fear, intimidation, envy. He, it's a popularity contest. He wants to ingratiate himself with the people. Whatever it is, he doesn't stop the sin. And his conscience is bearing witness against him. And that's why he says, well, we got to make a feast to the Lord here. Now, keep in mind, Aaron is a concession. I said this back, I forget which lesson we began talking about uh, Moses and his the call of Moses. And Moses kept making excuses to God, you know, hemming and hawing, I can't do this. I don't speak well. The people won't believe me, blah, 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 wine, wine, wine. <laughs> and, God, and God's patience wears out metaphorically and says, fine, fine. I'm going to send you Aaron, your brother. Is he not a good speaker? So Aaron was a concession. Aaron was a plan B. If Moses had had faith and he trusted God and stepped out, you know, relying on God, then none of this presumably, hypothetically, would not have happened because Aaron would not have been in a position of power at all. So it's interesting because if you look at the story of Abraham and Lot, in the Genesis Bible study, we've talked about how Abraham was not supposed to bring Lot. Lot became a lot of problems for Abraham. Abraham's constantly bailing out his nephew. His nephew never should have come at all. In the same way, Aaron shouldn't have been in this position. So you can kind of look at it like what Lot was to Abraham, Aaron is to Moses here, Okay. So in a certain sense, obviously Moses is not to blame, strictly speaking, for this sin. Aaron is to blame. But if Moses had faith, uh, then maybe this wouldn't have happened. It's one of those kind of hindsight is 2020s and a kind of woulda, woulda, coulda, shoulda moments here. Uh, but this is, a, this is a horrible thing that Aaron does. And, and it's a reversal of the Sinai covenant with God. It's, a, it's these details here about how they rose up early the next day, burnt offerings, peace offerings. They did all of this at Sinai. If you go back to chapter 24, which we just discussed here, Israel worshiped God 
with burnt offerings and peace offerings um, by the by the firstborn sons, right? They set up an altar early in the morning, and then they the elders eat and drink before the presence of God halfway up the mountain. Now, my friend, they're doing all of this for for Apis. This is the antithesis of Sinai. It is a perversion and a reversal of the Sinai covenant. Really, there's one more connection here as well, but I hadn't shared it with you because in chapter 25, I'll, I'll share this with you in the next lesson. In the beginning of chapter 25, God says to Moses that all the people are to make a, an offering of gold or silver or whatever for the construction of the tabernacle. Well, that's, there's a reversal here as well because Aaron says, give me the gold right, that you have in your ears, your earrings, and they do. So even the offerings are kind of a reversal. Instead of making an offering for the tabernacle, they're making offerings for the construction of this God, this God Apis here, okay? Now, it's even worse than this because, you know, for me growing up, you know, I was a Protestant growing up. I read the scriptures all the time. This story is, you know, pretty pretty famous story here. And it just kind of, for me, always seemed like the, I didn't get it. Like, I didn't really understand what the idolatry was. Or I should put it this way. I didn't really understand what the temptation was to worship a calf. Like, you know, a calf doesn't really evoke adoration to me at least i mean maybe hindus would say something otherwise but why why worship this calf well it was this fertility god right and when you worship the fertility god you did things that evoked fertility rights and that's what's being described here very gently when it says they rose up to play that's not that doesn't mean that they were playing lawn games of some kind you know like cornhole or backgammon board games or you're playing some soccer or football or they're, they're not they're hanging out and playing with each other like it's a big old barbecue uh you know on the, on the weekend with your friends and your family to rise up to play is a euphemism for sexual activity okay it's a, it's apparently i have to double check this but i just learned this apparently it's the same kind of connection if you remember back in genesis isaac um says that his wife rebecca is his sister but king abimelech's notices Isaac, quote unquote, fondling Rebecca. And he's like, wait a minute, you're not a, a brother and sister here. You got to be married. Well, it's the same expression going on. That's kind of the, the, the background to all of this. What's happening, they rise up to play. They're they're engaging in the, the fertility rites. It's the cultic, orgiastic rite and behaviors to worship the god Apis. And this happened all over the ancient Near Eastern world. It happened even in the Greco-Roman world. Like if you're worshiping a a particular fertility god. Like think of Aphrodite amongst the Greeks. If you're worshiping Aphrodite, the, the goddess of sex and, and, and fertility, they're going to be engaging in fertility rites. And so all of these temples, ancient New Eastern world, and even in the Greco-Roman world, they would have cultic prostitutes, male and female cultic prostitutes that would help the worshiper adore and glorify this pagan god. So you can imagine, I mean, with very little imagination here, why it might be so enticing for people to get involved in these fertility rites, because they're all sleeping together. They're having, it's, it's like um, one big orgy, right? And so people were drawn to this and it was easy for the demons to, it's like Woodstock, right? If you know, if you know Woodstock, it's like, oh, okay, maybe it's a little bit of that going on. I'll let you draw the connections for yourself. But it was, it was an enticement for people. It was very easy to fall into this, to worship this God, to offer up the sacrifice. You have uh, a participation, a communal meal with the pagan deity, which, which is really a, a, a demon behind this pagan deity. And then you all have a, a quote-unquote party, okay? It, it, was, it was a huge problem. And so here, that's exactly what Israel is doing. That's exactly what Israel is doing. And it's, it's a mortal sin. It's, it's a huge sin of apostasy, of turning away from God and going back to Egyptian idolatry. They broke the first commandment, 
within weeks of its establishment. They broke the, the covenant with God within weeks of its ratification here. And the witness of all of scripture really talks about how it was such a calamity here. Let's just stay in the Old Testament. Let's look first at Ezekiel chapter 20, verse 8, here in your notes. Uh, Ezekiel says, they rebelled against me, or is God speaking, they rebelled, uh, rebelled against me, they would not listen to me, they did not every man cast away the detestable things their eyes feasted on, nor did they forsake the idols of Egypt. Acts of the Apostles, St. Stephen says, our fathers rebu- refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt. They made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and rejoiced in the work of their hands. And St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, Do not be idolaters as some, of they, as, some, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. So a consistent witness throughout Scripture that they're committing grave idolatry here is not just, you know, putting up a pretty calf and it glitters in the sun and, oh, how so beautiful, let's worship it. It's not that simplistic. It is, again, this fertility rite that they're engaging here. And it really shows you truly how steeped in sin they had become. There's an expression that a lot of teachers will say that it's one thing to get Israel out of Egypt, but it's quite another thing to get Egypt out of Israel, right? Egypt is still in Israel. The Egyptian idolatry is still in Israel, and that's what they're reverting to. When after a little while, there's a lot of spiritual application here. You could probably call it, you know, is it like the dark night of the soul? Do they have no more consolations from God? God is not speaking them to anymore. And things are very silent and very dark. And they don't know what to do. And so they go back to the way it used to be for them. Absolutely, there's an application there. So they go back to Egyptian idolatry. And so because of the fertility, cultic, orgiastic background to this, What often is taught in scripture, the scriptural witness, is that idolatry is often equated to spiritual adultery. Spiritual adultery or spiritual harlotry, a grave mortal sin. I don't even know what to call this. Spiritual harlotry, spiritual adultery, it's all the same thing. It's this grave sin. And this quote I have for you in the notes explains it very well. It says, the covenant with the Lord is frequently framed in matrimonial terms. Hence, infidelity to the covenant is likewise frequently associated with acts of physical infidelity to the covenant of marriage. Then it gives examples from Hosea, Isaiah, and Ezekiel here. So that's what's happening here because, sure, and I explained this before, there's two very famous and very frequent metaphors to describe God's relationship with his people. The first one is of fatherhood, right? A parent-son, father-son. The second is of matrimony, nuptial imagery. God is the divine bridegroom, his people is his bride. And so essentially on Mount Sinai, God betrothed himself to his people, wed himself, wed his people, and they are now, they're one, right? They're one, and now the people have turned away. To turn away from their bridegroom, God, to go towards towards and go after all the other pagan gods is adulterous idolatry, right? It's spiritual harlotry, it's spiritual adultery, however you want to say it. It is a big, big deal here, what they're doing. And it is also a connection to the sin of Adam, right? What Adam did was a huge was a huge sin as well, right? It's his original sin. We talk about Adam's original sin in our Bible study in Genesis. Original sin is a common doctrine amongst Catholicism and other uh, denominations as well. But this is Israel's original sin. Here are this great quote here. I really like this. It says, In light of the Adamic role to which Israel was called in the first Sinai covenant, that's chapters 19 through 24, we may say that what the forbidden fruit was the forbidden fruit of the tree of knowledge was to Adam the golden calf was to Israel right what the forbidden fruit was to Adam and Eve the golden calf was to Israel this is their original sin 
Right? And they fell away soon after the covenant was ratified, just like Adam fell away very soon after the covenant of creation took place. Now, we don't know exactly how long after creation Adam sinned against God, but it was uh, it's the consistent testimony of tradition that it was soon, right? It was very soon afterwards. So you have these Eden, Edenic, all right, these themes of Eden taking place in the fall of of, uh, of Israel, and we're going to talk more and more about that as we go on. There's a lot of themes about the fall of Israel, connecting it to the fall of Adam and Eve and the creation of Adam and Eve, and connecting that with the creation of Israel. And that's certainly going to be true next lesson when we conclude everything and we look how the tabernacle is a restoration of the Garden of Eden. So we have much more to say about all of these themes between Eden and Israel. Right now, the connection is that it's, it's, this is their original sin. They fell away from a covenant with God, just like Adam fell away from a covenant of God as well.